0: Good morning, everybody. I, uh, I always love our uh, student Sundays, student takeover Sundays. I have the biggest smile on my face. And uh, if I was to take off my pastor hat and put my dad hat on, on behalf of all the other parents that are best blessed by student ministries, I have a daughter who's in high school who participates uh, as well. And I just want to say thank you. Thanks to Pastor Hudson and thanks to all of you who volunteer and who lead our students in a godly way you are yet. It's kind of weird, you know, that, that um, sometimes the voice of a parent gets minimized. You ever notice that? Um, that happens sometimes, you know, and you pray that your kids would seek out godly counsel. And so just thank you for that. Thank you for those of you who serve in that way. And be praying for our student ministries. I think if there's a, a soft spot in the church that the powers of darkness have, it's gonna be for our kids. That is the future of the church, and so I love when they are given the opportunity to even lead us in worship, and we're just blessed, and so I'm just super thankful to God for uh, that gift. So anyways, if you are here for the first time, welcome. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you personally, I would love to have the opportunity to do that right after the service. I'm usually hanging out right down here uh, in the front. So if you've been around for the last few months, you know that we've been working our way through this ancient text known as Genesis, the book of Genesis, as the name implies, Genesis, genealogy, it's all about beginnings. It answers life's most basic and fundamental questions, and that is, how did we get here? How did I get here? How did all, where did all this come from? Genesis answers those questions. And what we've been learning is that in a six-day period, because of the greatness of God and his infinite capacities, he creates everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing, all that we see. But on day six, he saves his most special creation event. There's only one creature patterned after God himself. He creates them male and female, Adam and Eve. Places them in an unbelievably beautiful environment, Garden of Eden. Eden literally means desirable. He gives them free reign. Incredible freedom. God is not a God of restriction. He says, just stay away from one thing. Just one. See, in the middle of the garden there are these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These two trees would determine the destiny of man. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because when you do, you're going to experience death. God tells Adam and Eve, tend the garden, take care of it. Perpetuate the beauty of Of my creation, that's why I've been saying all along that Christians should be the best ecologists on the planet. In a very real sense, God is green. He created it all. Now, we don't believe in salvation through recycling. We believe in salvation through Jesus. But there is a very real sense that we are called to maintain and perpetuate life on earth. Tend the garden, God says. Before God gives Adam a wife, he gives him a job. Work it. Eat the fruit, eat the vegetables. It is a vegan paradise, if there is such a thing. I'm joking, relax. It is literally though, it is a vegan paradise. Everything is going so well, until this bizarre creature shows up and he begins to tell a story. But the story he tells is very different than the story that God has told. And this is where things begin to unwind because now there is a choice between storytellers. Who will be believed? We get the introduction in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So this creature is really unique. The first thing we learn is that the creature is crafty. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting because this same Hebrew word is found in the book of Proverbs a number of times, actually. And when we find it there, it's always applied to humans and in a very positive way. I'll give you an example. In Proverbs fourteen fifteen, it says this, the simple believes everything, but the prudent, that's the same Hebrew word in Genesis 3 translated as crafty, But the prudent prudent gives thought to his steps. So why is it translated in two different ways? Well, context is king. It determines everything. And so the context of Genesis 3 has this creature coming on the scene and using his words to manipulate. Crafty. Not so much prudent, but more crafty in this context. I actually prefer the word cunning because someone who is cunning is intentionally manipulative and deceitful. Someone who is cunning is really good at taking words and using them for his or her own advantage, and that's exactly what we see happening with this serpent. Uh, now, the other interesting thing about uh, this, uh, this serpent is that it, uh, it speaks. It talks. And so there are a lot of people who immediately dismiss the Bible and they're quick to say, the talking animal, this is why the Bible is fable or fairy tale, just like all the other fables that contain talking animals. Well, two responses here. Number one, the style of writing is not the style of fable or fairy tale at all. It fits the style of historical narrative. That's one thing. Number two, There's only two talking animals in the entire Bible. See, in a a fable, all of the animals talk, but in the entire Bible, you only have two. And additionally, when both animals talk, elsewhere we learn there's a donkey that speaks. Both times, the circumstances are very dark. I don't know that we should think of this serpent as a snake in terms of what we recognize as being snakes today. I say that because what follows next is a curse from God, specifically on this creature. And, and one of those curses involves this animal creeping on its belly, which implies that before then it may have been upright, which is kind of terrifying in its own sense. And I've been asking the question what is it about this creature that would even engage eve why would she want to have this conversation now this is where things get really really interesting so follow closely so the hebrew word for seraphim literally means to burn now we know the bible tells us that seraphim are the highest classification of angels these, these creatures are incredible. I mean, incredibly strong. It only takes a couple of these creatures to bring about God's wrath and destruction. I mean, they're super powerful creatures. Seraphim literally means to burn. And that's the description that we get. They have six wings, and, and they're on fire, but they're not being consumed. That's a pretty awesome creature. Now, the noun form of seraphim is seraph. is where it gets interesting. Because the word seraph means Serpent or viper. And it's thought that this etymology comes as a result of a serpent's bite. Feels like your skin is burning, like it's on fire. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we read that, ain't, that Satan is actually An angel, not of the classification of seraphim, but of cherubim. We know that there are many different descriptions of Satan in the Bible. We know that he's a master of disguise, the Bible tells us as well. But then in Revelation 20, we get this crazy language. It's the last book of the Bible, but this language takes you back to the Garden of Eden. There's Garden of Eden language all throughout the Bible, including in the very last book. And this is where it gets really, really interesting because there's this angel that deals with, well, let's figure it out. Revelation chapter twenty, and he, this angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. That's Genesis language. Well, who is this exactly? This dragon, this ancient serpent, because we know that this serpent appeared in the gardens. That's clearly what's being referred to. Who is the devil? Okay. And Satan. Okay, in case you're, you're having, you know, in case you're not clear. And bound him for a thousand years. The ultimate destination, as we continue to read, is hell. Hell was created for fallen angels. Some of you are aware that the Satanic Temple is holding its first ever nationwide Satan Con or Satan Convention here in Scottsdale. Do you all know that? In two weeks, the weekend, the Phoenix Open. And some, some have asked me what I think about that. And I, I was. I was thinking about it. And um, I think I would say this. If you're a Satanist, at least be true to your leader and his outcomes. Okay? If you're a follower of Satan, at least be true to your leader's leadership and to his outcomes. Therefore... Don't hold your convention in a beautiful place like Scottsdale, Arizona in the middle of February during the week of the Phoenix Open. Rather, again, being true to your conviction, your convention should take place in Gila Bend in the middle of August. (laughs) Because anything else, and you don't practice what you preach, right? Think about it. Hypocrite. Crafty, cunning, intentionally manipulative. There is some kind of force or entity behind this animal, and its intention is to undo all that God has done. And this animal begins a conversation with Eve. Now, what's interesting is that when God creates Adam and Eve, he specifically tells them, you are in the position of authority over everything, including the animals. But what happens is an animal comes on the scene and begins to usurp man's authority. And you know what follows next? It's the undoing of everything. God establishes authority with great purpose and intentionality. And whenever God's purposes and intentionality are undone, disaster follows. Because what we begin to see is where there was unity between the man and the woman, there is now disunity. And then there's all kinds of family dysfunction that comes in. Because in the very next chapter, stay tuned in a couple of weeks, but we see the first murder. And you know where it occurs? Between two siblings. So whenever God's authority is undone, bad things happen. And so now the animal is in a position of authority over man. And just to see how cunning Satan is, he said to the woman, did God actually say, now let me get this straight, okay, because it doesn't seem right. Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Crafty, crafty. Eve is the target of the conversation. Why? Perhaps she's a little, little bit more vulnerable to misunderstandings because God spoke to Adam with the restriction. And then Adam told Eve. So she's one conversation removed. So in that sense, she might be a, a bit of, a, of an easier target. And then he gets her to question the very words of God. As if to say... Eve, you realize that um, God might be withholding something good from you. Uh, Eve, could it be that you don't have all of the information that you need? It's as if Satan has taken the restriction of God much further than where God took it. Did he really say you shouldn't eat from any of the trees he projects God in a negative light when in reality God said you can have it all except for one and so Eve is quick to correct the serpent verse 2 and the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die so There's no indication that God actually said you'll die if you touch it. So it could be that Eve actually took God's restriction further than God intended. Or maybe this is just poor communication on the part of of Adam, her husband, which would seem highly unlikely because husbands are excellent at communicating (laughs) with their wives, so that can't be the case. Um, But you know, do you see what's happening? There's this little tiny seed of doubt and that's all it takes, man. That's all it takes. Because Satan is now going to press in hard. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die. This is a direct contradiction of God's word. See, because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, withholding something good from you now. And you will be like God. And he wouldn't want that. Knowing good and evil. So look, this is a great strategy. First, he, he gets Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Then he gets her to doubt the badness of sin. And he's put a lot of thought into this. A lot of thought. A lot of intentionality. And that's the exact way to describe it, because in Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says, says this. We, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The Greek word is noiamata, from which we get our English word schemata. Schemata is a blueprint or a plan. He's, he's been thinking this through. It means to put intentional thought into something. He's very, very good at what he does, and he's very, very manipulative. And he plays two roles in your life. First, he comes out as the tempter. And it's always the sugar coating and never the cavities, right? And then when you fall into the temptation, he switches roles and becomes the accuser. How could you? Do you feel ashamed? Don't you feel guilty? Guilt, shame, it's all a result of the fall. He's very, very good at what he does. Uh, and he doesn't have to think up new tricks um, because the old ones work really, really well. And you know, the, the most believable eyes, as we all know, are the ones that contain a little seed, a little kernel of truth. And, and, and that's where the manipulation comes in because he says, your eyes will be open. And that was true. Eve's eyes are gonna be wide open, but not in the way that she thinks. You'll be like God. Well, there's a sense that that's true in that they're going to know good from evil, but it's not going to be a positive thing in the way Satan spun it. Um, It's as if Satan convinces her to live apart from the wisdom of God. You know what's interesting? You will be like God. Research indicates that for the younger generation, specifically those 30 and under, the greatest of all virtues is not love, compassion, generosity, mercy. It's none of those things. You know what it is for the younger generation? The greatest of all virtues? I've told you many times before, autonomy. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's the idea Nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. The Bible is incredibly relevant. Don't ever let anybody tell you the Bible is antiquated or outdated. It speaks to the true condition of the human heart from day one. It's autonomy. It's essentially Adam and Eve saying, we will put ourselves on the throne. We will determine what is right and what is wrong. We will determine what is true and what is false, regardless of the fact. And they knew it better than anybody. Their existence is due to the God who created them. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, look at this, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate also. The Bible describes three things that cause us to surrender to sin. 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the desire of your flesh, the desire of your eyes, and your pride and your ego. Those three things are the source of your downfall. Those three things are the source of your heartache, pain, and misery in your life and mine. Lust of the flesh. Oof. That looks really good. And it must have been beautiful fruit. Garden of Eden fruit. Pleasant to the eyes. Oh, and it's going to make me wise. That's pride. Pride. Now, it can be said that Eve was deceived, but Adam was wide-eyed in his rebellion. Because what's interesting is that when the serpent speaks, he uses the plural form of you. He's not speaking directly to Eve. She gives to Adam who is with her. He's talking to both of them, but Adam is a bystander. He's listening. He's watching. The command came to him. He gives it to Eve. But now he's just kind of. And death was supposed to come into the picture, but Eve is alive. For now. All of God's words will come to pass in his timing. Trust him. Eve isn't dead. It could be argued that they don't fully understand what death is yet, but things haven't changed. She eats gives to him. He eats with full knowledge and an open rebellion of God's word. And it's kind of like this drop, a drop of dye in a cup of water, a matter of seconds, the entire contents is tainted, everything tainted. Changes. Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam and Eve as our genetic parents represent us all. In an instant, everything changes. They move from ease to dis-ease, from trust to distrust, from harmony to disharmony, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Bizarre. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I've been thinking a lot about this. It's such a strange thing that really what they first notice is that they're they're naked. What is this? I think this is an ancient way of saying their innocence is totally and completely lost. You know, if you've ever raised little kids, right, toddlers, they love running around naked. You take off their clothes. You get them dressed. They take off their clothes. They run around. You're chasing them, right? When the kids are little, they'd be playing in the backyard, and you just get the... Get, get them out there with the hose and just, you're just hosing them off. They're running around the yard. You know, they're having the time of their life. They don't think anything about it. You know, they're running around naked. They don't, they're in front of other people. They're naked. They don't know any better. They don't know their arm, their leg, their face from their private parts. They're, they don't know. Why? Because there's an innocence to it. There's an innocence to them. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that's lost in the fall is sex and sexuality. If I had a magic wand, and I could wave away one vice, it'd probably be porn. I think in the past I would say divorce, but I think now the cause of much divorce is porn. I'd wave away porn. Isn't that interesting? Bible is so irrelevant. Come on. Open-minded and open-hearted, the Bible speaks to the true condition of the human heart. Drop your ego and your pride, and you'll see it as such. What a sad sight. Paradise Lost, new reality show. And how does it open? They've got fig leaves. Um, Have you ever touched a fig leaf? It's like really scratchy. Um, there's a lot of little tender mercies on the part of God that you're gonna see. And one of those is, he's like, we gotta fix that, because that's uncomfortable. But see, sin undoes a lot of things, because you try to cover up for it, and what happens? It's made worse. What happens next is that God comes to them gently, and with the heart of a loving parent. Adam and Eve had the perfect parent and they still chose to rebel. Parents, give yourselves a bit of a break. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just a beautiful, beautiful environment. You know, just perfect weather. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I uh, Adam says, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. My innocence was lost. You know that have you When something awful happens um, to a child, whether it's abuse or otherwise, the thing that makes it so devastating? it's just that that child's innocence is gone and and when when deeds horrible deeds are done it leaves such an impression and and the child will never be the same things done in the presence of a, the innocence of a child are especially devastating they're especially sinful because it just strips that innocence away and God being perfectly holy, I think there's a sense that from Adam and Eve they recognize we are now unholy in the presence of the most holy creature imaginable and it causes them to hide. Sin always causes us to hide from each other and from God. Now, um, this isn't like a game of hide and seek where, where God is walking around like, where are you? Where are you? I can't find you, I can't see you. You know, I, it, this, What this tells me is that God was, had this routine of dwelling with man in this beautiful garden and God is walking and he's enjoying his own creation and there's unbroken fellowship. But on this occasion, things are different because Adam and Eve are not out and about. As God is walking and enjoying things, Adam and Eve, why are you hiding behind that tree? It's not a where are you, I can't find you. It's getting them to think, what has caused you to hide from me? And this is the gentle heart of God. See, so often we view God as this cosmic, distant, gray-haired guy that's super mean and like can't wait for us to mess up so he can just punish us, but here you have God. Calling them out from their hiding place. By the way, God does the same thing today. You are hiding something from God. You are hiding something from God. We all do it. God sees it all, He takes no pleasure in what He's about to say. Okay? This is God saying, hey, <laughs> let's, it's not like God saying, hey, let's just, you know, let's have some angels intervene and we'll just smoke these people and start over. No, no, it's, hey, let's, let's get this thing back where it needs to be, okay? Come out from your hiding spot. That's a gracious, loving, and merciful God. Eve, no mention of the serpent, and then he actually says, you know, God, you're partially to blame because if you wouldn't have given me that woman, I wouldn't be in this position. (laughs) Human nature, Eve says, not me, serpents to blame, human nature. What they should have said is, we screwed up, sorry, we listened to the wrong voice, we bought into the wrong narrative. And we immediately felt the consequences. We made a mistake, God. Sorry about that. There's none of that. What what does Adam admit to his feelings? Well, I was afraid. And you made me afraid, God. You're the one that made me afraid. So quick uh, to blame. But I can assure you that all throughout the scripture, we won't get away with passing the buck. Um, This is illustrated by jesus own death he's crucified between two thieves and one thief looks at jesus and says come on and do your thing if you are who you say you are get us all off these crosses the other thief says he's innocent and we are guilty he's done nothing and we're to blame and what does jesus say you're going to be with me today in paradise His admission of his own guilt is all it took because that's a heart issue, that's repentance. And Jesus says, you're with me. So to summarize it in the following verses, God gives the consequences to this rebellion. He's not happy with what he has to say, but a holy God has to deal with disobedience. Just like if you're a good parent, you don't let your kid go crazy. The serpent is told that he will go on his belly that one from a woman will come forth and crush him. The woman is told that she will give birth, or excuse me, that she will give pain, she will have pain in childbirth. It's a really interesting phrase because um, the grammar tells us that it's ongoing pain, which means this, moms. (laughs) The pain that you experience in motherhood doesn't end at birth. Because what happens is those little creatures grow up They cause a lot more pain, ongoing pain in your life. And then God speaks to Eve and says, the relationship that you have with your husband, it's not going to be harmonious. We're going to talk about that next week. I figure since I've already been on a cross the last few weeks, I might as well stay up there. The dysfunction that ensues between husband and wife is a direct result of the fall. God gives an, an answer, a pattern for reconciliation and a way out through roles. Our worth is not defined by our roles. Our subordination to God and his good word is defined by our roles. Next week. So, to the man you're going to struggle uh, with your work, the relationship that you have will not be what they were. God takes no delight in these judgments, but I see grace because God will begin this work of reconciliation which will ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus. So, question. What is God calling you out of? What are you hiding from? What are you withholding? What tree are you crouching behind? because what God is saying is, come on, come out, come out, come out. I remember one of my kids used to love to eat chalk. I don't know what that, that's a weird thing. Just love to eat chalk. We had the big old thick chalk, right? Big old thick, like the street chalk. And I knew that, that he was eating it because he kind of had some overgrown teeth when he was little. It's beautiful teeth now. But he'd take that thing and he'd just, you just see the Two teeth marks scrape right down that chalk. And I'd be looking, i him like, dude, you've been gnawing on the chalk. Yeah. And you've had a you know, kid like, that th- does something like this, you know. It's like I found him one time hiding under the play set. the chalk all over his face. <laughs> hey, buddy, come on out. All right, drops the chalk. <laughs> so dang cute. that's so dang rebellious, just like me. We're all born sinners, take away a baby's bottle, does he thank you? He seethes with rage, which would be murderous if he had the opportunity. (laughs) I never never once had to teach my child to take some other child's toy. You know, it just came natural. And then we grow up and we get older and we just manage it in a different way. But it's still there and we hide. And God says, come out, come out. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. In a minute, we're gonna have some of our amazing students give witness testimony as they get baptized. Before that happens, What is God saying to you this morning? The word of God is powerful. What is he saying to you? What is the hiding place? Come on out. It's it's already in the light as far as he is concerned. But out of love and mercy and grace and compassion, he's saying, you know, we live on this side, of the Garden of Eden, not yet the restored Garden of Eden, but we live on this side, which was made possible by the cross. It's covered. Come on out. Come on out. I'm going to set you free from the guilt and the shame. Come on out. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you've given us. I mean, it just... It helps us understand life so that we can live it with purpose, order, and meaning the way you, as the author, creator, sustainer of all life, intended it to be. Lord, I pray for those that are here but they feel far from you. Like maybe they've been not just hiding, they've been running from you. I pray that they would see you in a new light this morning as a gracious and loving father that wants nothing more than to remove the dysfunction in the family father for those that have little corners we all have them little dark corners that we keep hidden nobody knows what's in there except for us oh and you god bring it to light no more hiding all for your glory lord because you know those things aren't giving us life they're robbing us, they were enslaved to them They're not feeding our souls. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to every heart in the room. I pray a special blessing over these students who are about to give witness to the reality of your work. And we're so grateful for that. We pray against the powers of darkness that love to rob, steal our joy. Because in the end, we want Jesus lifted up. And in the end, he has been lifted up and will continue to be lifted up until he returns, and then there will be no doubt. Until that day, Father. All for him and for his glory. And God's people said, amen.